Uh, the passage that we're going to read today is taken from Judges 2, verse 1 to 5. Let us all read together in a count of three. One, two, three. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bokim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Bill. You guys may be seated. Awesome. I'm excited to start the book of Judges. How many excited? Okay, a couple of you, not all of you. I hope by the end of the series, all of you will be excited about this series. Now, a few couple of things that um, I want to mention before we start. The kids are actually doing the same series as us. However, they're doing the shortened version. We're doing 15 sermon on Judges. They're doing five sermon on Judges. We're doing rated R. They're doing G, okay? Because the book of Judges is, let me tell you, you will start to see there's a lot of crazy things happening, okay? If you think this week is bad, wait until the week after. It gets worse and worse and worse. So, and I want to encourage you as well to bring your physical Bible because we're going to read a lot. Like, for example, today, I think we're going to read about 40 to 45 verses, okay? So if you have your physical Bible, I think it will help for you to be able to concentrate I mean, we have the slide for sure, but if you have physical Bible, I think it will be even better. Okay, you ready to start? Now, I read about an interesting experiment uh, on internet that I want to try tonight. Why don't we stand on our feet? Okay, let's do this. Let's stand on our feet. Okay, I'm going to try to sit you down by one, one by one, okay? So if you meet the qualification that I say, take a seat. If you never heard a sermon on the book of Judges. And by sermon, I do not mean Sunday school story. Proper sermon on the book of Judges. You never heard him. Take a seat. Not a single sermon on the book of Judges. Wow, that's a lot. Okay? If you heard a sermon on Judges only on the story of Gideon, Gideon is your guy. Take a seat. If you heard a sermon on Judges only on the story of Samson, take a seat. If you listen to sermon on judges on Gideon and Samson, both of them. So you, you heard sermon on both of them. Take a seat. I want to see how many people are the expert Christian here. This is the guy, the people who are... <laughs> Why are you guys sitting down? <laughs> because, okay, stay standing. If you, if you listen to sermon other than, other than, you know, Samson, Gideon, or Deborah. Okay, anyone? All you guys are already sitting. Anyway. But the point of the experiment is this. Most likely, if I ask you, if, have anyone ever heard entire sermon on the book of Judges? Most likely, no one will remain standing. Okay, if anyone remains standing, then the purpose of the experiment, that person will remain standing for the rest of the sermon. Okay, praise God, it is successful. Now, the book of Judges, they're not popular to preach on. Except Gideon, Samson, and most likely Deborah. And there's a good reason for it, because the book of Judges is extremely bizarre. 
Many scholars call it the worst book in the Bible. And I agree. It is extremely dark. It is filled with toxic events such as genocide, holy war, slavery, oppression of women, rape, child sacrifice. The best way I can put it is like the G-O-T in the O-T. Some of you get that later. And when I posted on Instagram that we will do a series on the book of Judges, some people, I think they mean well, they messaged me and they said, wow, the book of Judges is my favorite book in the whole Bible. And I thought, these people must have a really dark personality to have Judges as their favorite book of the Bible. Or they never read the entire book of Judges. Because let me show you the first and last verses of the book of Judges. Okay, the book of Judges 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1 says this. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So the book begins with the people of God are seeking God for direction. It's good, right? It's positive. But then if you read the last verse of the book, Judges 21, verse 25, it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone, say what? Did what right, was right in his own eye. So the book begins <laughs> with the people of Israel seeking God for guidance, and the book ends with everyone doing what is right in their own eye. God is no longer in the picture. It starts with the story of the Israel fight against God's enemy, and it ends with a story of a Levite who cuts his concubine to pieces and sends them to different tribes of Israel. It is extremely disturbing story. Edric, you've been assigned to preach the concubine story. <laughs> so the book of Judges, it started really well, and it, it ends in such a way that it makes Sodom and Gomorrah look pale in comparison. To which, when we read this, we should ask, hold on a second, what happened? What went wrong? And this is why I think it's very important for us to study the book of Judges. Because the theme of the book of Judges is the canonization of Israel. It is the story of Israel's self-destruction. Okay, I know there's a couple of heroes that we're going to talk about, and those heroes are amazing. But the overall theme is actually about Israel's self-destruction. And we need to hear the message. Because today, we live in a day and age where the world is trying to make us like the world. So we live in a time where being Christian is not only considered not cool, but offensive. And the world tried to conform us to the pattern of the world every single day. And that is why I think it's very important for us to study the book of Judges. Because those who fail to learn from history are doomed to relive it. And in order not to repeat the same mistake, we need to ask the question, what went wrong? What happened with Israel? What went wrong? Or maybe, let me make it more personal, maybe that's your story. See, there were times in your life that you were on fire for God, that you love God, that God is at the center behind everything that you do. But if you can be honest today, God is no longer in the picture. Maybe you still acknowledge Him. You know that He exists, but you have no relationship with Him. And you wonder, what went wrong? You with me so far? So today, we're just going to look at that, okay? 
So let me give you the context of the book first. The first two chapters of the book of Judges are very long introduction. Okay, so we're going to separate into two sermons. Today we're going to tackle the first part of the introduction, and next week we're going to tackle the second part of the introduction. And the book of Judges begins with the death of Joshua. Now you guys know who Joshua is? Joshua is the great military commander who led the people of Israel into the promised land. So this is the man that looked to in order for them to have godly example in their life. And during the life of Joshua, the people of Israel, they love God. They worship God. They are on fire for God. But when they enter the promised land, what happened is this. The book of Judges tells us, even though they are near the promised land, there are still lands to be conquered. They are in the promised land, but not all of the land belongs to them. And at the beginning of the book of Judges, there's a crisis in which Joshua, the great commander, died. The war has been won, but there are still many battles to be fought. And the Canaanites now are still living in that territory, and now the Israelites need to get rid of them. And the purpose to getting rid of the Canaanites are not vengeful or economic, but spiritual. They are to be removed so that Israel will not fall under their religious influences and start worship other gods. That is the purpose. And now, we will see what happened in the story. That's Israel able to fully obey God in what God wants them to do. Because what God asked Israel to do, Israel, I want you to trust me and obey me. Get rid of the Canaanites from the land. Okay? Let's look at what happened. I have three points for my sermon. The blessings of obedience the crack of disobedience, and the verdict of God. Let's go to the first one. The blessing of obedience, verse 1 to 3. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanite. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. So the book of Judges, it started very well, right? So the people of Israel, they know, okay, we need to get rid of the Canaanites, but we don't know how. So the first thing that we see is they seek God's guidance for it. Now, we do not know how they inquire of the Lord and how the Lord answer. Maybe they say, hey, God. And God replied from heaven, hey, you. I don't know, right? We were not told how they talked to each other. But one thing for sure, that Israel seeks the Lord, and the Lord answered them. They know that they can't defeat the enemy on their own. So they ask, who shall fight first against the Canaanite? And God replied, who shall go first? Judah shall go first, because I have given the land into his hand. So note what's happening. There's a defined direction. God say, Judah shall go first. And then there's defined assurance and defined power from God. God said, I have given the land into the hand. All they have to do is obey God. You with me so far? But then something strange happened, okay? Something really strange happened. Rather than trusting God and being the first to fight, the tribe of Judah goes to the tribe of Simeon and say, hey, bro, do you want to do this thing together with me? If you help me get rid of my enemy, I will help you get rid of your enemy later. Now, you see what happened here? This is really strange. From the outside, it looks like a smart thing to do, all right? You gotta, you know, friends to fight together. That's cool, right? 
And some commentators say that it is a sign of unity and God bless the unity among His people. Or if you grew up in a charismatic church like me, they spiritualize this story because they say this. Maybe you heard this. Judah means praise. Simeon means to hear. So what you need first and foremost before you battle your enemy is you need to praise God and hear from God. Sounds very convincing. I'm like, sounds good. But is that what's happening in the story? I don't think so. What Judah does is common sense militarily, but it is faithlessness spiritually. Because God is clear, Judah shall go first. But you know what Judah did? Simeon, come with me. So Judah's obedience, from the very beginning of the book, we can see that his obedience, yes, he obeyed God, he goes, but his obedience, half-hearted obedience. To which we go, hmm... But God still blessed their conquest. Okay, what happened in verse 4 to verse 10? Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the parasites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adoni Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the parasites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumb and his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seven kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off. Uh, cut, cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Abba. And they defeated Sheshai and Hamanam, Ahaman and Talmai. Okay, here's what happened. So Judah conquered and defeated all his enemies. But here's something strange that happened in the story. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of time when we talk about the conquest of Canaan, one of the most common problems that people have, they ask this question. How can a good God allow genocide? You heard that before? How can good God allow the murder of many innocent people in Canaan? This is very cruel and unjust. It is a very good question. But you know what's the problem with that? Hear what Adoni Besek say. So when they capture this guy, Adoni Besek, and cut off his thumb and big toe, he does not say this. It's not fair. I can't believe this is happening to me. This is so cruel. I do not deserve this. He doesn't say that. You know what he say? I have done the same to 70 other kings. So God has repaid me for my wickedness. Now, this is what happened. In other words, the Canaanites, they're not innocent people. They are wicked, wicked people. And in the book of Deuteronomy, we find that they burn children as sacrifices. They listen to fortune tellers. And the land was filled with orgies, incense, and homosexuality. So God made it clear to Israel, Israel, I'm going to drive out the Canaanites, but not because of you, but because of their extreme wickedness. So Israel is not on war against innocent people, or no. Israel is on war with cruel and wicked people. And God is bringing judgment upon them through Israel. And Adonibesex understand that. He said, I got what I deserve. 
And having won against Adonibesek, Judah continued to march and drive out the rest of Canaanites from their territory. And while recording these wonderful victories, the order of judges then zoom in on one faithful family, the family of Caleb. Okay, we're going to see a little bit of romance story in the middle of the war, okay, to make it more fun, right? You know, whenever you watch a romance, uh, war story, it's somehow, somehow unrelated romance in the middle of the story. That's what's happening here. But there's this reason why there's a story of romance in the middle of it. Okay, let's go together. Verse 8, 11 to 18. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiryat Saphir, and Caleb said, he attacks Kiryat Saphir and captured I will give an Aksha, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured. And he gave him Aksha, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a fill. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Sephtah and defaulted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. If I pronounce any of this wrong, please forgive me, okay? I do not know how to pronounce this word. Neither do you. So what happened in the middle of the conquest, we have a wonderful story of romance. Why? Because this wonderful story of romance is actually a miniature of what Israel should look like. Here's a man by the name of Caleb who offered his daughter to a man who dared to trust God's word and attack Kiryat Sophia. And all they put his hand up, let me do it. So he obeyed God, and with his courageous obedience to God's word, he captured the city, and then he, mar- he marries Aksha, Caleb's daughter. And Othniel marriage with Aksha is flourishing. Now, Aksha is doing her role as a wife who takes initiative to support her husband. So they're doing the best to settle in the promised land and enjoy God's blessing. So what we have here in the picture is a blessed marriage in a fertile land. And this is what God's trying to say. Israel, if you obey me, this is what I have in mind. If you trust me and obey me. So what's the lesson for us? The lesson is very simple. Here's the lesson. God wants our trust and obedience. Trust and obedience to God bring godly success. So Judah experienced tremendous success in their conquest because what? They seek divine direction. They receive defiance assurance, and they walk in divine power. So with another from the very beginning of this battle, before the conquest began, God already said to Judah, I have given the land into your hand. Sure, there are many battles to come. But before a single battle breaks out, God assured them, the land is already yours. This is God's talk. Only God can talk about something that has yet to happen and put it in a perfect tense. Only God can do this. So don't miss what's the point between, between in this passage. The real reason behind their success 
It's not a good battle strategy. It's not military might. It is the presence and the promises of God. And it's also true for you and me. So if we have the presence and the promises of God, then you and I, we have no reason to fear. Because whatever it is that we face, we can have courage because the God who made the promise is God who can be trusted. This is God who look at nothingness and make creation dance at His word. This is God who look into the future and speak as if it already happened. This is the God who holds the universe in the palm of His hand. So here's the question for you and me. When is the last time we dare ourselves to trust God's promises. When is the last time we choose danger over safety? Or how we become those Christians who talk so much about the promises of God with our mind, but not with our life. For some of us, here's what's happening. We know the promises of God, but we do not obey His commandment. It's like this. Let's say someone gave you a check of $1 million. I know I need to explain to some of you what check is, different generation. Check is actually a piece of paper where you actually get to write the amount of money you want to give to other people, okay? I know the teenage check, what's that? Never heard of in my life. Ask your parents. It is very important. Maybe you can ask them to write your blank check. Maybe that works. So now, let's say you get a million-dollar check. How would you feel? Well, if I were you, I'd be happy and excited. So if my dad gave me a million-dollar check, I'd be like, wow, thanks, dad. Because with that $1 million, I can buy a lot of things. So here's what happened a lot of times. So I get that $1 million, and then I laminate that check, and I put it in the living room and for everybody who comes to my house to see. So when you come to my house, I talk, look at that check that my dad gave me. It's amazing. He gave me $1 million. You know what I could purchase with that check? So much. I can buy a new car. Maybe not new house, but I probably I can buy a new apartment. I can buy so much thing with that check. So I talk to you so much about that check, but let me tell you the reality about that check. It's useless. So I can talk so much about that check, but unless I take that check to bank and cash it and put it into my account, that check is worthless. And a lot of times, isn't that what we do with the promise of God? We receive the promise of God. We receive a million dollars of worth of promise of God. And we love to talk about it. In our MC, oh, amazing, God promised me this, this, this. But my question is not that. Because if you only talk about the promise of God, but you don't trust it and obey it, it is useless. But when we trust and walk in obedience to God, here's what happened. God blesses our obedience and He gives us godly success. So when is the last time we dare ourselves to trust God's promises? But then what happened next is very bewildering because that is the obedience, right? The success of obedience. And then look at what happened next. The crack of disobedience. Verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Does anyone find anything strange about it verse? I find it very strange. Because on one hand, he says, the Lord is with Judah. Am I right? So the Lord is in Judah's side. The Lord brings success to their conquest. But on the other hand, they're not able to drive out some of the Canaanites because they have iron chariots. 
Twitch make me think, wait, hold on a second. Are you telling me that God is able to give Judah victories? But now God is like, whew, sorry guys. That thing, that iron, that chariots, they're too much for me. They're too hard. They're too modern. I can't do anything about it. Tough luck. Is that what's happening? I don't think so. I believe what's happening is not that Judah could not, but Judah would not. Judah failed to trust God completely. So what happened is Judah began to measure their strength. They look at the strength of the enemy, and they look at their strength and said, there's nothing we can do about that iron chariots. So they began to make compromises. They compromised with the enemy. And I love what Timothy Keller says this. It is not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessing or worshiping God wholeheartedly. It is our lack of faith in His strength. It is not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessing. No, 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 no. It's our lack of faith in God's strength. So when we rely on ourselves, when we rely on our own calculation, instead of simply obeying God's word, we are making the same mistake as Judah. So rather than obeying God wholeheartedly, we start to make compromises. And here's the thing about compromise. In the beginning, it looked really small. It looked insignificant. I mean, no one's going to notice it. No one's going to pay attention to it. But let me tell you, in the long term, it has massive consequences. Okay, look at what happened next. Now, we're going to read a lot of verses. Try, not get, try to follow it. Don't get switched off, okay? We're going to read a lot of verses, but there's a point to all that we're going to read. Verse 20 to 36. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusite who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusite have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against battle, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out battle. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called his name Luz. That is his name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Eblaim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. We're not finished. Next slide. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who live in Gezer. So the Canaanites live in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites live among them, but became the subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Abhalp or of Akshib, of Helba, or of Akpik, or of Rehob, so the Asherah lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anah, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anah became subject to forced labor for them. 
The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris, in Hakialon, and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Okay? Now, let's be honest. How many of you lost track of what happened in this story? Okay? Some of you, okay? What's happening in the story? is the author is giving us geography lesson. And let me tell you, I'm really bad at geography. I get C minus. Like, I'm really bad to the point that one of you, when one of you told me that you were from Chilagon, oh, I thought Chilagon was some island in Sumatra. True story. So when I first read these verses, my men were blurry. Like, what is this happening? I don't get it. But as I look at what happened, there's a vital teaching that we must not miss from this geography lesson. Anyone notice what happened? Here's what happened. The little compromise that Judah made began to spread like a wildfire. The tribe of Benjamin failed to drive out the Jebusite. The house of Joseph made a covenant with Canaanite men who end up recreating the city of Luz. Manasseh failed to drive out the various inhabitants. Ephraim allowed Canaanites to live among them. Zebulun offered for forced labor. The people of Asher and Naphtali live among the Canaanites. And the tribe of Dan is confined to the hill country because the Emirates are determined to hold out to their land. Here's what happened. Notice the downward progression of the conquest. Verse 25, 26, the Canaanites are spared. Verse 25, 26, 20, Canaanites are allowed to live at a distance. Then, Canaanites are allowed to live among the Israelites, verse 27 to 30. Israel allowed to live among the Canaanites, 31 to 33. And Israel allowed to live a distance from Canaanite, verse 34. Now, do you see what happened? What we have is a downward progression of the campaign. What a disappointing end of the campaign. So what started big, what started amazing, because of one small compromise, it leads to progressive failure. Well, some might reason, well, well, it's not really their fault. It's just the enemy is too strong. There's nothing they can do about it. But there's one verse that we might miss in the midst of this geography lesson, and that is verse 28. It's very important. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. So the order of judges make it clear. The reason that the Israelites do not drive out the Canaanites, not because they are too weak, not because the enemy are too strong, even when they become strong, they make Canaanites work for them. So the reason implied here is because it makes more economic sense and it requires less effort to enslave them than to drive them out. Convenience trumps obedience. Now, don't miss it. That means the issue is never but they could not. The issue is they would not. Rather than obeying God's command, they choose successful disobedience. They experience pragmatic success, but 
spiritual failure. Dale Ralph Davis, who wrote, I think, the best commentaries in the book of Judges, this is what he say. It is possible for the believer's life to display the mark of success and yet be a failure in the eyes of God. Christian success, whether personal or in the form of a glossy evangelical enterprise, is not necessarily the same as pleasing God. Get that into your mind. Worldly success does not equate pleasing God. So what we find here, what started off as a great conquest become coexistence. So now, Israel lived alongside the idol-worshipping Canaanites, and this is the beginning of the canonization of Israel. And right now, Israel is like a ticking bomb. It's only a matter of time before the bomb explodes. Here's an important lesson from the passage. Destructions always start with a small compromise. It begins with a small crack of disobedience. Living with Canaanites leads to worshiping with Canaanites. Did you realize that? Like, when we see people make a big mess out of their life, when we see people commit that destructive sin, it does not happen overnight. It never happened overnight. Never. You know how people fall into the sin of adultery? They don't fall into the sin of adultery overnight. You know how adultery often begins? It often begins with one inappropriate text message. So what we must not do is fool ourselves into thinking, you know what, I can make these small compromises and it won't matter because no one will know anyway. It's just a small thing. See, every time we disobey God, here's the truth, every time you disobey God, you make one little crack in your life. And that crack's getting bigger, bigger, and bigger, bigger every time you disobey God. So every time you disobey God, every time you make that compromise, there's more, the crack's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So do not believe the lie of the enemy that says that we can coexist with sin. Because sin is not something we should compromise. Sin is an enemy we must drive out at all costs. Let me put it this way. There's a story that I found that came out in October 2017. I Google it. Some people say it's a true story. Some people submit. I'll let you Google it yourself. Not now, after the service. So the story goes like this. A woman bought a pet python and slept with it every single night. You already know where this story is going. So she loved her pet python. So every single night, she would sleep with her pet python sprawled around her body. Like it was that bonding moment, you know, that she had with her snake. She cherished it so much. Until she started to realize something was wrong. She got concerned because after weeks of sleeping with her python, her python suddenly stopped eating. And after a few weeks of not eating, she took her python to the vet and told the vet that the python had not eaten for weeks. And hearing that the woman slept with the python every single night, the vet was alarmed, like, woo. So he asked the woman, since the python had not been eating, has it been sleeping in a circular pattern around you? Or has it stretched in bed, or has it stretched from end to end on top of you? And the woman replied, 
That's a strange thing. See, when we first started sleep together, my, my python would sleep in a circular pattern. But ever since it stopped eating, it stretched out from my head to my feet. And the vet got very alarmed. He said, ma'am, the reason why your python is stretching out across you, it is it's sizing you up. The reason why it's been starving itself is because it's preparing for a very large meal. You are next on the menu. Now, can you see what happened? What started as cute and cuddly, it became deadly. Now, let me give you how to not be eaten by Python 101. You ready? This is mind-blowing. It's extremely mind-blowing. You'll be like, wow, this is amazing. How to not get eaten by Python 101. You ready? Here's the answer. Do not have Python as your pet. I mean, it doesn't matter how cute and cuddly it is, it will eventually eat you because it's a predator. It is designed to kill you. But isn't that a picture of what we do with sin? We know the Bible that said that sin will kill us, but it's cute, it's cuddly. Do not buy the delight of the enemy that we can coexist with sin because sin's purpose is only one. He wants to eat your life. So here's a question that I want to ask to consider. Where am I saying I can't, but God is saying you won't? Because those areas in our life where we say I can't, but God says you won't, that is the crack of disobedience. Because God will never put you and me in a position that we cannot obey Him. There is never a real I can't moment. It's not that we can't. We won't. So business people, are you doing your business with integrity? Or are you cutting corners to make more profit? Students, are you doing your best with your assessment? Or are you stealing and cheating from other people's work? Singles, are you living in sexual purity? Or are you somehow rationalizing your porn addiction and sexual activity because, well, that's our culture. Everybody's doing it. Hurting people. Are you extending forgiveness to those who hurt you? Or are you holding on to that bitterness because you feel like it's unfair for you to extend that forgiveness? And Christian, are you putting God first in your life, especially in your finances? Or are you keeping most of it thinking that, you know what, I need this for my future security, for my self-indulgence? Where are the areas where we say, I can't, but God says, you won't? Hit the warning of the text. A small area of compromise can become a large area of disaster. And here's the verdict of God. If it's not clear, here's God's verdict, and God make it extremely clear. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? 
So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lift up their voice and wept, and they called the name of the place Bokim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So here's God's verdict on Israel. An angel of the Lord come from Gilgal to Bokim. And this angel is not ordinary angel because when he speaks, God speaks. Okay, we will talk about this angel more in the coming sermons. But he showed up a couple of times in the book of Judges. And now he comes to the people of Israel with a verdict. See, when we read the story about Israel and the Canaanites, you know, we kind of rationalize. Like, yeah, yeah, okay, of course, the enemy, they're too strong, too many of them. We start to see, you know, maybe the Israel, they're not advanced enough. They did their best, but they're not good enough. It's not really their fault. But God strongly disagree. Chapter 1 give us the fact. Chapter 2 give us the explanation of what happened in chapter 1. And God says this, your problem, Israel, is one. You disobey me, period. So it's never about they could not. It's always about they would not. It is not the superior might of Canaanites that divided Israel, but it is Israel's unfaithfulness to God that led them where they are. Israel disobeyed God. How has Israel disobeyed God? They disobeyed God by making a covenant with the people of Canaan. Instead of breaking their altars, they lived together with them. And here's what happened. Remember, the motivation of getting rid of the Canaanites is always spiritual. Because God wants Israel, if the Canaanites live among you, here's what's going to happen. You're going to start worshiping their gods. You're going to start to be tempted to worship other gods but me. That's why you have to drive them out. So the choice is either the Israel drive out the Canaanites or the Canaanites will destroy them from the inside. That's the only two choices. And here's what happened. Israel disobeyed God. Israel made compromise and they made covenant with the people of Canaanites. And because of that, in the coming weeks, we'll find out that Israel no longer worshiped the God of Israel alone. They begin to worship other gods. Idolatry become rampant, rampage in Israel. And because of that, God says, Canaanites will become thorns in their side and their idols will be a snare to them. What started off as a compromise ends with rejection of God. And then the angel of the Lord graciously rebuked the people of God and they weep. They cry out to the Lord, and they make sacrifice to the Lord. But that's it. I mean, they have that deep emotional experience, right? The wonderful worship service. But it's what happened. They don't change. So they have a good cry, but they do not repent. And I think that's the problem with most of us. And this happened a lot in most Sunday church, right? Oh, wow, yes. Like, wow, man. Thank you for the sermon, bro. That's Amazing, like God really touched me in that sermon. You know, I felt like God really spoke to my heart. Thank you for the sermon. I'm like, cool, bro. That's awesome. But did you repent of your sin? Nah, bro. I feel guilty, though. I shed a couple of tears. It was a good cry. It felt good. But that's it. And that is not what God is after. I mean, if you cry when you listen to sermon, praise God. You know, a couple of tears make me feel good. It kind of validates my existence as a preacher when I see the congregation start crying, you know. 
kind of like, oh, I, I preached really well today. People start crying. But what God is after is not your tears. What God is after is something different altogether. God is not after our tears. He's after our repentance. He's not after emotional experience. He's after heart transformation. So what God desires from all of us is more than our wet eyes. He wants our broken heart because tears without repentance are meaningless. But the church, I think a lot of us, we become so good at shedding those tears. But we are horrible at changing our heart. And now the stage is set for the book of Judges where the people of God living unfaithful to God in the middle of an idolatrous culture. It is a very dark time. But it doesn't mean there's no hope. Because even though the people of God are unfaithful, God is faithful. But there's a tension. I want you to hear the tension in first one and first three, okay? Here's what happened. I want you to feel the tension. In first one, God says this. Israel, I will never ever break my covenant with you, right? But then in verse 3, he said, but I will not drive them out before you. So it's as if God is saying, you know what, Israel, I've sworn to give you the whole land, but yet at the same time, I swore not to give it to disobedient people. So God is in a dilemma. That's why he said in verse 2, what is this that you have done? So God is saying to his people, guys, you put me in an impossible situation. I sworn to give you the land, but I also have sworn I will not bless you if you disobey me. So how am I going to solve this dilemma? Another word to say it is this. God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin at all. He cannot bless evil. But at the same time, God is also a faithful God. He cannot break His promises with His people. So what's happened now? And this tension you will see throughout the book of Judges. The question is this. Will God finally give up on His people and break His promises? Or will God finally give in to His people and break His holiness? Which one? There's this tension. Which one? You know the answer? Today we know the answer. The answer is neither. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, God revealed himself to be both holy and faithful at the same time. And he resolved this tension. How? Because God is holy. He cannot tolerate the sin of his people. Every sin must be paid for. The justice of God demands infinite payment for every sin against infinite God. And that is why the cross of Jesus revealed to us the severity of sin. It shows that God is holy. He's the God of justice. But that's not the only thing the cross shows us. The cross also shows us God's faithfulness to His people. Rather than making His people pay the punishment of sin, He took the punishment of sin upon Himself. See, at the cross, Our sins are imputed to Jesus. Jesus took the infinite wrath of God towards sin upon himself. So at the cross, the justice of God is satisfied and the faithfulness of God is manifested. So now when you look at the cross, 
the cross revealed to us the length that God is willing to go to remain faithful to us. And He does not do it by ignoring His holiness. Oh, no, 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 no. He does not do it by ignoring His justice. Oh, no, 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 no. God says, I am holy. Every sin must be paid for. But the good news of the gospel is God Himself came and embraced that punishment on our behalf. Our sins are imputed to Jesus once and for all. So that when we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. So right now, we are fully loved, fully accepted, fully forgiven because of Jesus alone. And that is why we can have the confidence that God will never, ever break His promises with us because the consequences of our sin is already paid for. This is the only way the tension of judges can be resolved. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only way God can be both holy and faithful at the same time. My friend, this is the gospel. And if we get this, it changes our life. Without the gospel, we will always either compromise with sin because we know God's unconditional love for us or live under the burden of guilt because we know we deserve God's condemnation for our sin. But the cross resolved that tension once and for all. So today, you and I, we can live forgiven, obedient life despite also living sinful, disobedient life. The gospel enables us to constantly pursue God, constantly pursue that obedient life without being crushed by our disobedience. See, if we don't get the gospel, you will be on one side. Either you don't care about your life because God loves you unconditionally, or you will continue to live with your life in such a way with the burden, the burden guilt on your shoulder. Only the gospel can free you from both. You are fully forgiven. And now you can pursue God. Only the gospel can give us and enable us to live a true Christian life. Why don't we close our eyes? So now my question for all of us. Where are the crack of disobedience in your life? Where are that little compromises that you make again and again? What sins are you sleeping with right now? Because my friend, let me tell you, that those little compromises might seem small right now. It might seem insignificant. But it will kill you from the inside. So tonight, before we go and continue with the service, I think it's only right for us to confess our sin, for us to acknowledge, acknowledge the compromises that we continue to make in our life, and put sin to death. For maybe for some of you, you've been living that with that 
crack for many years. And you wondered what's wrong. What went wrong with your life? Those small cracks has become a large disaster in your life. And today the Word of God is calling you to repent. Repent of your sin. Because sin only has one purpose. It wants to kill you. It wants to eat your life. So I don't know what kind of compromises that you have in your life right now. But I do know that when you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sin. He died at the cross for your sin. He paid for it. You don't have to live with the burden and the guilt of your disobedience. He wants to set you free. But He wants you to confess. He wants you to admit that before Him. Because unless you take off that mask, unless you face that reality that you're sleeping with Python on your bed, you're going nowhere. So now before we continue and sing, communion, I want to give you this chance to come before God honestly and repent of your sin. So if that's you, if today you know, you know that you know that you know that God is speaking to you, there's this crack in your life that you've been ignoring, that you've been compromising again and again and again, and God is speaking to you to repent of that. I want to give you the opportunity to acknowledge that before God. In count of three, I will ask you to raise your hand high and lift them high. It's between you and God and me. Confess that before God. And then we're going to repent together as a church and believe in the forgiveness has given us. So if that's you, if right now you know that you know that you know, and God is not after your tears, God is after your heart. So if right now you have no intention of repenting of your sin, then forget it. Don't raise your hand. It's useless. But if now you know that you know that you know that God is saying to you, repent and your heart is broken and you want to repent, the good news of the gospel is God is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sin so in count of three if that's you I want you to raise your hand high and we're going to repent together and I'm going to pray for you one, two, three raise your hand high you can put your hands down now Heavenly Father I pray I pray for my brothers and sisters who raised their hand I don't know what they're facing in their life right now. I don't know what kind of crack it is they're dealing with. But I know that you are able. I know that you're good. And I know that your blood can cover all our sins. When we confess our sins before you and when we repent, we find that the blood of Jesus has covered us all our sins. That today we're not found in our guilt. We're not found in our disobedience, but we're found in the righteousness of God that you have given us freely when we put our faith in you. So God, today as we confess the cracks of our life, I pray that from this moment forward, Lord, you give us strength 
to trust you and obey you. Not that I can't. We confess that it's not that I can't, but I want. And today we say, I will. I will obey you. I will trust you. And I know, Lord, you will empower us to live a holy life that's pleasing to your name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And we believe, Lord, from this moment forward that we will see victories over that cracks that's been overwhelming us for many years, maybe. Because we know the power of the Holy Spirit, power of a given life, is already at work in our life. And we ask this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.